Hello, it's Alice Arnold here. Welcome to the Magic Musicals and Theatre podcast. And this week, I'm talking to the stars of the play Pressure, David Haig and Laura Rogers. I'm backstage with David Haig at the Ambassador's Theatre. Now, last time I was doing a podcast, I was at the Play Gym, which was palatial. This isn't. Um, the, the, no, David, <laughs> it's not. We are in, we're quite a compact, It's I very say, compact. For I, the I, number one dressing room. Well, quite. And yes. a number one dressing room that I share with Malcolm Sinclair. I'm very happy to share it with him, too. But uh, <laughs> as I was telling my wife, it is, our dressing room is smaller than our double bed. It, it is really, t- it really is it tiny. Is minute. It is. Now, David Haig, I am a massive fan of yours. Oh, well, that's just very nice to hear. That. Ever you. since Portrait of a Marriage, really. Oh, wow. When I just loved you in that because you made me cry oh, so much. It was a good story. It was fabulous. And yeah. then I've just followed your career ever since and everything that you've been in. I oh. go, David Haig's in that. I'm going to watch that. Oh, uh, thank you. So I came, of course, to watch the show that you have written and star in yeah. uh, Pressure and yeah. um, you, you've done you've done lots of comedy as well in yes. your career yeah. this yeah. is is not comedic um, there's pre- humour in it there, there is humour in it yeah. it's very relevant to me because I was I was the voice of the shipping forecast for 20 years on Radio 4 I really? Was, yes oh that's fascinating yes. Um, no. So I sort of understood because pressure. Well, do you want to explain what it's about? Yeah. Well, pressure is about the weather forecaster for D-Day, the Allied weather forecaster for D-Day. And boring though that might sound, it's not actually because he essentially saved Europe by persuading Eisenhower to delay D-Day by 24 hours because he saw appalling storms, dune storms coming into the Channel which would have capsized all the landing craft because they were flat-bottomed, and we could have lost between 40 and 80,000 lives. And all the American weather forecasters thought it was going to be a glorious sunny day. And this very dour, tenacious Scot, James Stagg, stood his ground and persuaded Eisenhower. The following day, his true genius was revealed because he noticed that a storm was slowing down off Newfoundland, So he went back to Eisenhower and he said, look, I told you yesterday to delay, but if you go tomorrow, you might have an eight-hour window. And the rest is history. It's kind of the opposite of the Michael Fish story, isn't it? It, It's It's sort of is. It's the opposite. When when you were right, he was right. Well, Michael enjoyed it. He came uh, to see it twice. Did he? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm sure he's fed up of people talking about that. But it's And it's quite technical about the weather, what I loved about it, because we do actually see the pressure pattern maps. Yeah. On the on the screen, yeah. well, it's a well, they're a, giant, ten they, foot by eight foot maps. They, they're the backdrop, really, aren't they? They are, and yeah. we can see, especially if you slightly understand the weather, which yeah. I, I love the weather, yeah. the pressure maps. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you can see where that sort of space is, where yeah, there was yeah. a window for sort of six hours Absolutely. on the 6th of yeah, June. Otherwise, yeah. we would have all been, well, we wouldn't have been celebrating D-Day, would we? Been no, no, I don't know no, what we would have no, been doing if no. it had happened on, on the The war fifth. would so have gone on for years. And what first drew your attention to this story? The play's origins um, were a commission by the Royal Lyceum in Edinburgh probably five years ago now and they wanted a Scots story an unsung Scots hero and John Dove had a book of unsung Scots heroes and uh, and 
we researched it and I thought you know the moment I started researching stag I thought it was absolutely irresistible and then through stag discovered a lot about Eisenhower and his extraordinarily moving relationship with Lieutenant K. Summersby who Laura Rogers plays and um, this interdependent relationship that Churchill and Roosevelt everybody supported because they kept Eisenhower calm so those three are the sort of points Stagg, Summersby and Eisenhower are really the three emotional points of the story. And when you wrote it you mm. weren't, didn't think mm. you were originally going to play no, that's right. Stagg did that's you? That's right and I'm not being disingenuous here I genuinely didn't see the character as anything to do with me and uh, we asked two very famous Scots if they'd like to play it. One of them was too busy. The other, the only reason they said no was because they'd played a lot of terse dour Scots over the years and didn't want to do that anymore and didn't want to be tied down to that reputation. So I'll leave your listeners to try and work out who that was. Right. <laughs> um, so, because I was going to, because you wrote the play as well yeah. as starring in it, and obviously you didn't write this part for you because no, you didn't think you were no. going to play it. But when you are you speak as an actor writer, are you speaking the lines for yourself? Are you? It's very. It's a very strange process being in your own play. I I did do it before when I did My Boy Jack. I wrote My Boy Jack and played Roger Kipling in it on stage and the telly version, and. Uh, so I was used to it once the producers this time round asked, but it is an odd feeling speaking your own lines. And the, the, the amusing thing is, because John Dove, uh, the director, wonderful director who directed both this and My Boy Jack, occasionally I'd sort of turn to him and spontaneously say, I, I just don't get this, why, why does he say this? And then I realised, of course, well, if I don't know why he said this, then nobody's going to, because so I wrote do you, it. Do you, did you change it at all in rehearsal? Very, very little, and usually structurally, rather than because a line didn't sound right in itself. But, uh, but yes, I mean, John and I worked sort of terrible word coming up organically on that as the rehearsals went on, yeah. And although the play is about the D-Day landings, I think... Well, my favourite moment in it, there's a scene quite near the end mm -hmm. when your character and Eisenhower's characters actually talk about personal loss. Yeah. And it's the relationship between personal loss and mass loss in war, yeah, I suppose. Absolutely. absolutely. And what, what you both do is bring that home. Oh, uh, well, to, you can come again because that's the most important moment to me in the play. Is it? Well, I, yeah. I, I love yeah. that. And it seemed like that was very personal to you. Yes, it is. To, it to is. put that in. Yeah. Uh, because. Um, I lost a sister when she was 22 from a brain hemorrhage and I also lost a baby, we had a stillbirth. So I've always been fascinated is quite the wrong word, but um, truly interested in the nature of loss. And as you say, that relationship within war of mass loss, aspiration, camaraderie, but always in the background, the potential devastation of loss. And it was the, it was interesting that Eisenhower, although you know commanding thousands of troops, did see the personal because I think yeah. that most people think that, that generals, it's a loss in terms of numbers. We want it to be seven thousand mm. rather than forty thousand. Exactly. Whatever. And indeed, each one of those matters. Each yeah. one matters. And, and and as I say in the play, if it, anybody out there who's experienced a loss in family or a, a loved one knows how widely the repercussions reverberate you know and I call it in the play the chain reaction of grief because it spreads to everybody those people know and can last a lifetime.
Mm-hmm. So imagine that on a scale of 50,000 dying. Right, well, we'll move away from that. Yeah, let's. From that, yeah. Um, but you talked about the similarities between you and, and James Stagg covering up anxiety. Yeah. With the sort of yeah. confident exterior. Yes, bonhomie. Um, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you suffer I, from that? Uh, I do, anxiety? I do. I mean, uh, yes, I think my family would confirm that there is a similarity, that, uh, that whatever is on the surface thinly disguises a sort of mind that never stops angsting about this, that and the other mm-hmm. um, and tries to stay in control of it but not always successfully. Right. But then that's But that's life, that's isn't the, it? Yes, and the joy of, of, of acting if you were totally in control of it, it wouldn't be It wouldn't be wouldn't as exciting be, wouldn't or be interesting. As interesting would no. it? Now your first play yeah. was also about war Yeah. Uh, is this a is this a, th- a theme with you? Have you always had a sort of fascination for military? No, it just happens to be that those two are the most successful plays. I did one in between called The Good Samaritan, which was about the Samaritans. Again, I suppose touching loss, uh, this time suicide. So let's not get maudlin about that. But so I suppose there is a link there. But but the two war ones have been the most successful, which is interesting for the reasons I was saying earlier. You know. Um, and you've written for the stage. Would you write for television or film? Well, my boy Jack or, was film. Okay. So, um, and uh, and I'm hoping. <laughs> but would you write originally for? Hoping that, that this, this will should be. Filmed. Well, this yes. should. Oh, absolutely, it should um, be. I mean, you can. It uh, sort of feels it. filming. It, it really does. It really but, does. Um, but we'll see. It took me eleven years to get my boy Jack filmed, and it's only I'm only up to three and a half years with pressure. So I'm sort of on the foothills of. Uh, so when I'm seventy, about we we'll, we'll, we'll might see the film of this. <laughs> you never know. I could we'll probably get a free pass to the cinema by then. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've got my free train one. Have my you? oyster. I'm sixty-two now. That is the most pleasurable simple pleasure in life is going through those machines and it's free. for free 60 that I'm sure we don't we it? don't really deserve it now at 60 because 60 is quite well touch wood relatively young now but I mean what a feeling but anyway that's bye yeah, bye really um, <laughs> now so you've got five children I have uh, are any of them involved in, in theatre and yes. the same profession yeah my eldest Alice is an actress she's just finished an Agatha Christie tour which she enjoyed very much um, and my third is an actor, Fred, and he's just started, relatively speaking, he's been going 18 months and has just finished um, Follies at the National Theatre, which was a huge success. We saw it. And, well, there you go. He was one of the four young ghost figures. Oh, right. It? Yeah. And, um, and he's doing a couple of episodes of the new Stephen Polyarkov series, so he's very excited about so, that. That's they're great. They're both doing but well. The other three are yeah. safely not in the They've safely got a normal, yeah. a normal living. Yeah. You haven't got to worry so much no, about them. No, no, now, this play runs, uh, it's a limited run, only till yeah. the 1st of September. Yeah, we have been so, doing it since January. Yeah. <laughs> Around the country. All right, so we're late. Eat. We're late to the party. <laughs> at Magic. Do apologise. No, for that. no, not at all. Um, what What's on the horizon for you, I'd, apart from a holiday? Hopefully. Well, we're going. To, we're nabbing a week uh, because my wife works, and so uh, we we have to find these times carefully. But uh, then, what I'd love to do is write through the winter, and I've got a couple of ideas and a couple of meetings coming up, which possibly touch wood would afford me that and uh, that's what I'd like to do. And are you disciplined about that? Do you go to your desk every, uh, go right Pre- Pretty much, but it doesn't day have to be a desk I, I, oh. quite, I like writing outdoors when it's hot or in, in the corner of the living room if I get 
cosy you know I mean it doesn't have to be place specific which is interesting because a lot of writers like that mm. don't they yeah but no as long as I can get my mind into another place I'm fine it doesn't matter where it is and the, I can see the excitement on your face about hoping that you're yeah, going to spend the winter writing rather yeah. than the winter touring in, in a production yeah. of whatever you would rather well, be writing well also this part is predicated on tension really the James Stagg part so nine months of that I feel it would be nice to just sit behind a computer for three months. Yeah, yeah. and relax yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Because as someone who, as you confess, has an under, un, bubbling under yeah. anxiety and insecurity and all yeah. of that, you've chosen a profession which is just rife with it, <laughs> yeah, basically. Absolutely, yeah. 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 So you haven't got to wait for the phone to ring. You've got your meetings. Yes, I've got then meetings. I've got meetings next week, which are very exciting meetings. Now, usually and I talk about just to interrupt you uh, mm. cupcakes at the beginning of my interviews I, oh, do say, I don't think this was re recorded because I did give you some cupcakes you would did. you like to explain what you've done with them I've hidden them so that Laura Rogers who was going to share them with me doesn't immediately see them then I will feel guilty and I will take them next door and offer her at least one of the four well, if she heard this podcast, <laughs> she would she would know then, you see. Yeah. So your yeah. secret would be out. It'll be out and it, I'll never be trusted again. No. <laughs> <laughs> David, thank you oh, so thank much. You. I know you're off for a haircut now. I'm off I for believe. a haircut and yeah. then two shows. And then two shows. That's yeah. a, And, it, hey, it's a heck of a part. So a, two yeah. shows is... Oof. But we absolutely loved it when oh, we good. saw it. It's, a, it's the most intense but beautiful and moving and wonderful story. Oh, thank you thank for telling you. it. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I've now moved next door to another dressing room to, to speak to Laura Rogers. I've left David Haig to have his hair cut. Um, I did... David might want to say something to you when he next sees you um, about something that's on one of his shelves. I'll just tell you. It's on the shelf in his dressing room. Mm -hmm. And it's part of it is for you. Oh. Whether, whether that is given to you or not. Oh. I can't... That sort of seems to be up to him now. Right. Oh, well. So, um... I'll get it off him, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cupcake. Anyway, um, <laughs> Laura Rogers, you've... We're backstage still at Pressure. Mm -hmm. You've been with this production since the very beginning, haven't you? Really? I have. You've, you were at the inception. I was. Um, how did that come about in, in Edinburgh, wasn't it? Yes. Um, well, it was about four years ago now, maybe even a bit longer than that. Um, and... As with every job, really, I got a call from my agent and a script was sent my way and I read the script, went in and met the director. And yeah. we should explain who you play, really. Would you explain who yeah, you play? Yeah, I play Kay Summersby, who, um, as I say, was a, a real-life woman. Unfortunately, she's no longer alive. She died in 1975, I believe. Um, and she was Eisenhower's right-hand woman, um, driver, PA, confidant, and, and, well, as we are led to believe, and I personally believe, love interest. Yes, it's interesting. If you, if you do any research on it, mm -hmm. there are mixed things, aren't there? There are. Yes. I mean, they clearly had an incredibly close yeah, relationship. Yeah, that was not um, ever in doubt, no. and everybody was aware of the closeness of their relationship, but because she kept Eisenhower very calm and she dealt with all the men very well, including, you know, Churchill um, and all, all of the people surrounding Ike, they were very discreet about her relationship. 
with him because they knew that she enabled him to do his job to the best mm. of his ability, really. Um, and so it is questioned as to whether anything happened uh, sexually between them or not. But the one thing that nobody can deny is that there was a real chemistry and love and yeah yes I think the question is consummation or not consummation or not some people say yes that was some but definitely love it's so innocent I mean it's all just it's all described and it's all about the ease of their relationship and the and the body language and the companionship within the um, story rather than very um, explicit sort of lovemaking or kissing or, or passion, mm. passionate scenes, really. Well, it wasn't the time. It was not the time. No, it was not the time, <laughs> apart from the fact that we were in the middle of a war. <laughs> I'm sure it was the time. <laughs> but was it, did you enjoy doing the research? Had you played a real-life character before? Um, let me think. Uh, I'd have to actually dig back into <laughs> what, what I've done now. But, um, but did that no, feel different, it felt having different to do that research? And, and yes. That it was based on something. You had to make it up. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think what was great about it was because it was a new play and to originate the part meant that actually I could I, I wasn't copying or following anyone else I hadn't seen anyone else play her so I didn't have um, an imprint in, stamped into my head and so I couldn't imitate anybody else um, and she's so beautifully written I read um, some of well an autobiography called Eisenhower was my boss that she wrote while she was still alive and whilst Eisenhower was still alive. I mean, obviously, while she was still alive, but before she got ill. And so that was very much about their working relationship. And she comes across as just being... You can hear this incredible character come across. She was very witty and bright and, you know, um, strong-willed, fiery, passionate but and, and very efficient, but also very well loved between um, amongst everybody she worked for so her nephew came to watch this as did her sister-in-law who's now in her early 90s and they both said what a fiery personality she was but what a great laugh she was and how everybody just loved her company and um, so that really came across from her from her books um, and I just thought that she has such a fascinating... She played such a, a major part in the war, like so many women did in that era, that, do, that go unrecognised. And she really facilitated and enabled these men in power to be able to just do the job to the best of their ability. And, of course, these women are forgotten about. And once the war came to an end, she had to sort of go back to her normal life, as lots of women do. And, and I think that she felt... as that there was a real purpose for her when the war was on she learnt major skills she was a driver she knew how the the ins and outs of, of a car engine and mm. um and they were used and then i think they she felt sort of redundant afterwards yes it was rather sad to hear about the end of her life wasn't yeah. it? she married someone who she just married, married her somebody, for a mummy and he ran yeah. off and then she got divorced and then she never had any children which is one of the running themes throughout the play that i think that she was desperate to have a child, and I think probably that she would have loved to have had one with Eisenhower, but that was never going to be mm. on the cards. But when she died, she died of cancer. She wasn't particularly old, I don't think, and she was in her 60s, and this was in 1975. In her purse, they found 
a note that she'd kept from Eisenhower and it said something along the lines of, Dear Kay, there are so many things I wish to say, you know what they are or you know them. Mm. And I just thought that's so heartbreaking to think that she never got over that love and she never got over that time in the war. And I think these women, it's, it's, it's a real privilege to just be um, portraying her. Yeah, and giving her the credit now yes. that she probably didn't get at the time. Exactly. Although she was decorated in the war, I mean, she got medals and things. Um, you're playing, obviously, well, you're with I, you're Eisenhower's driver, but mm-hmm. obviously you have a lot to do with David Hay's character. Mm-hmm. How is it acting opposite the author? Well, in it fact, different? it's no, to, he's been amazing because. Um, you just forget that he's written it and he sort of doesn't wear his writer's hat. He never did in in the rehearsal room. He was very good at letting the um, director... Because the director had worked with him for about two and a half years, I think, on the script. So David would go and write scenes and then he'd send the scenes in a little brown envelope or an A4 size envelope to John Dove who would then go through some scenes and and make some suggestions and then write a few notes and then pass them back to David and David this is what this is what I've come to learn anyway and so they both sort of collaborated on it together and so John I'm David really entrusted John and, and they they both had a real trust between them that they were both on the same wavelength when it came to the script and the story um, so David was very good at letting John take control in the rehearsal room and if David did have a suggestion and John went no 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 I don't think that David was very good at accepting that but of course then there'd be times where John would say actually could we do a little rewrite here or there but, but David never ever tried to um suggest anything in terms of how we played our characters he was just being david the actor Mm -hmm. in in the room now going back to your roots laura you were born in carmarthen which you have lost your accent well yes yes yeah gone gone. (laughs) um did that go when you came to london um well i was born in carmarthen and lived for the first four years in aberystwyth but then moved to swansea at the age of four and um my mum is from Surrey and I was brought up by her so I've never really had a particularly strong Welsh accent and I think it does come back a bit when I'm around other Welsh people when I go home um, when I get angry or passionate or drunk (laughs) (laughs) it comes back Uh, or as soon as somebody says you don't have a Welsh accent then it comes out a bit stronger Um, but yes I've been living here now since I was 18 so was that a big culture shock coming to from it was I mean, yeah, I was kind of in denial, I think, because I went to RADA when I was... I got in when I was 17 and I went when I was 18. And for the first year, the youngest people and people from abroad were given halls of residence. So UCL, we used UCL halls. And it was right like by uh, the, where RADA was, or where RADA is, um, just off Tottenham Court Road. So we were right in the thick of everything. And I remember just thinking... I can't sleep because there's constantly police cars and fire engines and noise and hubbub. And I couldn't, and I was incredibly homesick for the first term. So it was a culture shock. It was before mobile phone, well, before I had a mobile phone. So I'd have to go to a phone box and do sort of pin in, like put in this code that my mum had given me so that I could send, 
phone her for free. Like reversing the charges. <laughs> yes, yes. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it was like a little BT card or something. And um, so I'd be just on the phone to her several times a day crying. Um, and I hadn't really appreciated how lucky I was to be right in the centre, in zone one, not having to pay for any travel and, you know, walking into my place of study. Um, but as soon as Christmas came round... I was loving it so much that I didn't really want to go home. So I adjusted pretty quickly, but it is, yeah, it was a completely different way of life, really. Um, but now I've adopted it as my as my home, and I couldn't really imagine living in it. It's brilliant going back to Swansea to see my mum and to be by the sea and see friends and family there, but I couldn't imagine myself leaving London now. And the other place you've done a fair amount of work is at the Globe, haven't mm. you? You've done, been lucky enough to do because lots of actors go their whole career and don't really do any Shakespeare. Oh, yeah, I know. But, mm-hmm. but you've managed to. Do you enjoy working in that space? Yes. I hadn't done it. I actually was one of the few people, I think, that went to RADA and didn't actually do any Shakespeare there. <laughs> I mean, we did. I, um, Must have done the term. Well, we did a term, yeah. yes. And I think, I can't remember now, I think we did a term studying a bit of comedy of errors but when it came to the third year where we do the plays for the public I wasn't in the Shakespeare play I was in the Noel Coward play so I didn't get to do any perform any Shakespeare in front of anyone and yet one of my first jobs was at the Globe doing Shakespeare and actually when one job led to another led to another and suddenly I was doing Shakespeare I thought I'm gonna have to learn how to do this then because I still don't <laughs> understand iambic pentameter or anything else so you do learn on the job but at first yeah that space I do remember thinking because I was 22 or 23 when I got my first job there and I when I was about 10 on the television I'd seen Annie Lennox performing at Hyde Park or something and I just remember seeing those crowds and how what an incredible feeling it must have been to be her and so getting up on that stage and seeing not quite as many crowds as you know Annie Lennox had but I thought this is probably the closest I'll ever feel to being Annie Lennox oh (laughs) yeah (laughs) that is a take on it (laughs) now what do you have a part that you would love to play that you're that obviously you haven't done yet but would um Um, well your dream role I think I mean I love I'd love to be in something like a prime suspect a Helen Mirren in a prime suspect that sort of a character because I love anything to do with thrillers crime dramas, murder mysteries all those sort of things and I'd love to depict like a strong woman leading the force Um, but in terms of theatre I absolutely love singing I love musical theatre I'm not a trained dancer and um, but coming from South Wales we had the opportunity to be in choirs and everything. everybody mm. sang as soon as they so, came out the womb so yeah I think any director I work with I always say please please will you direct um cabaret because I want to be Sally Bold and I think I must have been saying it now for about 15 years and so far nobody has taken me up on the offer but I'm still waiting well <laughs> if think, anyone's listening to this yeah. podcast any directors out there folks <laughs> yes. um, there's, a, there's a Sally Bowles waiting yes. just just <laughs> itching to do the part you finish this on the 1st of September. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a, a, a holiday, I hope, after this? Oh, uh, do I have a holiday? Um, well, it all depends, really, as, as we always say with work. If I get another job, which I'm too tempted by and I can't turn down, then I'll be doing that. Um, I often think that 
for actors when they're in a job they love that is their holiday it's waiting for the work that's when you sort of feel like you're employed in sort of the mundane trying to get something but but it's really hard well to if you're out of work you don't have the money to go when you're mm-hmm. in work you do and you don't have the time so you do have to just go very spontaneously I think. Mm. Well, thank you so much for talking to us in your tiny little dressing room. We can open the windows now and let some air in. Yeah, no, don't say that. It's it's a huge dressing room. We've been heating (laughs) heating you up. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Have a great two shows today. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving us your time. I'm Alice Arnold, and that was the Musicals and Theatre podcast. If you enjoyed that, then you can hear me every Saturday and Sunday morning from 6 till 10 on Mellow Magic, where I have lots of lovely, timeless, relaxing classics, musical numbers and interviews. (laughs) 